Welcome to the Oil & Gas Elevate podcast. Each week, Sean McCoy and Eric Johnson share real-world case studies of businesses in oil and gas that are successfully navigating the complex environmental, social, and governance landscape. These are the stories that are driving the energy evolution. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Welcome to your show. That's right. This show is for you. Yes, we're sponsored by Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And yes, we are starting out standing on the shoulders of the Oil & Gas Global Network and our family of podcasts. We're also able to physically record this show with ease and comfort through our partnership with the Canon West Houston. I'm Sean McCoy, your host. And as I look across the table at Eric Johnson, my co-host, all I can think about is the time that we've put into doing this as well to get us to this point. However, it's not until you, the listener, press play that you bring all these efforts to life. And for that, we are very grateful. So what do we have in store for you? Each week, we're going to bring you three independent but related segments for you to hear. They're designed to elevate information and knowledge to help you enhance your ability to discern elements of ESG and the ongoing energy evolution. This is the first segment, and I'm going to kick it over to my co-host to introduce himself and tell the listener, you, what is this segment about and what are we going to call it? Thank you, Sean. Let me just say I'm so excited to be here with you for this first episode and to kick off Elevate. I think this is just a critical issue for the industry. I think we have a platform and an opportunity to tell some amazing stories that are being accomplished across the industry. So a little bit about myself. I am a corporate and securities partner at Winston and Strawn, have been practicing law for 22 years, and am also the co-chair of Winston's ESG advisories team. So spent a lot of time in this space and just really looking forward to the show. Awesome, buddy. And so we're going to, this talking point, so what we're going to do, we're going to start out with this first, first area. So I was listening to a political, it's called the Political Energy Podcast. And there was an episode recently about Ohio State Representative Larry Householder's indictment on a $60 million bribery scam running around nuclear power. Now, this isn't about nuclear power. It's not about Ohio. It's not about what party he was a, bar, a part of. What this got me thinking about, Eric, is ethics. Ethics is such a huge part of what we do. It plays a big role in ESG when you're looking at environmental issues, social issues, governance. So many times it's easy to think that these, obviously $60 million in bribery scandals is, seems like way past the line of acceptance. But those of us in the everyday, we deal with ethical issues all the time. What are the ethical standards for social parameters for a business? What is corporate compensation supposed to be relative to an ethical issue? And it's not always quite as cut and dry as a massive bribery scandal. So it seems easy, but it is, it's not really. So when I talk about ethics or when ethics come up around business, ESG or whatnot, what do you think about? So, so for me, ethics and ESG, that is the foundation, the foundational question for everything we're trying to figure out, right? What's right? What's wrong? What's good? What's bad? Whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about energy transition, whether we're talking about diversity and inclusion or employee safety or anything else that's in that ESG waterfront, the question is what's right or what's wrong? How do we make those determinations? How does the corporate oil and gas business make those evaluations? We need a metric. We need a standard, some test to go back to figure out what's right or wrong and, and to make those decisions. What I thought would be interesting to talk about it, back in August of 2019, 
the business roundtable came out. That's about 180 CEOs of some of the largest companies in America. They came out and they kind of, they came out with a new statement on what's the purpose of a corporation. Now, historically, the purpose of a corporation as defined by the business roundtable was maximizing shareholder value. And we're just going to shorthand that and call it profit today. We're going to talk about dollars and money. And I think when most people think about corporate America, they think about it's all driven by the dollar. And that is the big decision that needs to be made. How do we make the most money? What was interesting, and so in August 2019, Business Roundtable comes out and they update their statement. All 180 CEOs signed it. And they said, no, it's not just about maximizing shareholder value. We really have all stakeholders that are at interest. All of them need to be addressed as we think about how we make decisions. That's employees, that's customers, that's vendors, that's the local communities that we operate in. And then that's also shareholders. It's all five of those groups. And I think for a lot of people, in all honesty, in the legal world, I think for most of the world, that was not necessarily a surprising thing. In the legal world, it was kind of a surprise. They were like, wait a second. We're walking away from all of these years of tradition of maximizing shareholder value. But I think if you asked any of those CEOs from any of those highly successful companies, they would tell you that for decades, this is exactly how we've been running the business. It's always been people, then product, then profit. Okay. So I think it was good for the corporations and the CEOs that lead them to come out and say, no, these are the things that matter to us. And in all honesty, it was fortuitous from a timing standpoint. Remember last fall, they come out with that statement. And then we come into COVID-19 pandemic where employee issues, safety issues, dealing with your local communities, all these things rise to the top. And so I think that has been a key change in kind of attitude and perception about how we address these decisions, right? It's not just the dollar. It's not just profit. But what are we going to do to maximize our employees and how they operate and succeed in their careers? What are we going to do with our customers? And importantly, what are we going to do with our communities? And if we do all of those things correctly across the ESG waterfront, the profits will follow. The shareholder value will follow. Yeah. No, it's definitely an idea. It's an interesting point. So one of the neat things we're going to do with this, in addition to hearing Eric and I, we recognize the need for other voices. And we actually did a contest on LinkedIn with our logo for this show. And we put it out there and asked our our, you know, 40,000 plus uh, LinkedIn followers, hey, if you have a vote, here's six images, what say you? And the winning vote, coincidentally, wasn't actually one of the six. It was people that said, well, what if you took the picture from this one, number six, and made it to number four? And so there were two people that, that said that. And so we decided to recognize our fans, recognize our listeners, and to support them. Hey, by the way, not only did you pick the one that we went with, we actually did combine the two and we were thinking about it but would you like to come on the show? And so one of those two people that did that is with us today, Jamie Absher. Jamie is a land analyst with ENV Natural Resources. She's got 16 years in the experience of dealing with mineral rights and land leasing, working across numerous aspects of the energy industry, working not only with these companies, but also with government agencies as well, which has got to be a lot of fun. And she's a self-proclaimed tomboy. One of the amazing things about her story is that she went way outside her comfort zone and recently ran and had the chance to become Miss Kern County for 2021, which is actually in Bakersfield, California. Now, Kern County has got about a million people, so it's not, it's, it's Rikersfield right in the heart of it. And she ran, I guess the World Peace Platform was all taken up at the time. And so she decided to run on this platform of being pro-oil and gas in a county in California. And so she put, her, put herself way outside her comfort zone and actually won the contest. Now, why we're telling you this is it's, it's led to her helping her break some of these ceilings, break some of these images. And she's actually in Houston, not in California. She's actually here with us because she's going to start a podcast called Miss Energy Progress. And the reason she wants to 
is she has a strong desire. And as the podcast statement says, it's to bridge the gap between the oil and gas and renewable energy industries through education and conversation. And so we felt like she's a she's an excellent guest to talk about ethics. No doubt, uh, Jamie, that in your career and your time in, you've dealt with this. And so after hearing a little bit about what Eric and I are talking about, when we talk about business ethics, what, what comes to mind for you? Hi, guys. This is Jamie Absher, soon to be Miss Energy Progress. I am working on my own platform to advocate for the oil and gas industry in California. I have been a landman for 16 years, so I've seen quite a bit of ethics issues that have arose. I'd like to thank Sean McCoy and OGGN for allowing me to be a guest, and I just so happened to win it in the middle of starting my own. So (laughs) thank you, guys. I appreciate it. And as far as an ethics issue that comes up is when we do acquisitions, we typically like to go and look at the job sites to see because not all notice of violations or NOVs, as we call them, are always reported, nor have they been found or caught or fined. One of the biggest things that I think we come up with or deal with as landmen is going out to the job sites and finding spills or sumps or issues that may not be reported. Yeah. So now you're sitting there with this issue around the asset thinking, how do we do this? How do we how do we allocate? What happens if it's hundreds of thousands of dollars off? What do you do? This dilemma, right? So ethics is a dilemma that we have because we're up against this and it's not always quite as clear as we want it to be. So what do you go to? Or what do you draw from when you're sitting there in this moment? It's real dollars, it's real people. And there's this gray area. As far as that goes with acquisitions, sometimes this happens after a deal has already been made. So sometimes there's a, an offer on the table But then when we do our due diligence, which there's always a due diligence process, is when we find these things. So then it becomes, okay, how much do we want this asset? And then so the ethical issues, even for a company, come questionable about what we are willing to put up with, bring to the table, or negotiate a new price. So I think it's very different, and it's case by case. And depending on what the issue is, it kind of goes from there. Yeah, so it seems like it's really kind of difficult. So as far as the company itself and your experience, is that a personal mandate that decides where the ethical value is or is it typically a corporate directive or something like that? Or, and then what do you do? Have you ever had a situation of, I mean, obviously I don't want to call out who the company is internally, but where either internally, like it, it was going to cost the company money or it could cost somebody else money. That's a tough spot to be in. Not typically with any acquisition deals. I think mainly those are ran by corporate. The decisions come from whoever's VP of the department or that area, depending on the size of the oil company, I think that just varies. I have, as a landman, though, dealt with personal ethical issues where it comes up to where maybe the company is wanting you to go out and lease property at a way higher price than the other companies are going out in a similar area. And so I think that that's where the ethical issue starts, where you have to take a look back and are you there for the company? Are you there for the other people? Do you, if you know you're screwing out the mineral owners, do you make that come to light or do you take it back to the company and then have a negotiation and a talk with them? And so, yeah, that's definitely a personal thing. And the way I've always handled it is I'm way too honest and I like my integrity <laughs> to my reputation to do well. So I've always, if I do find out that they are leasing at higher prices, I will take it back to the company and see what they want to do from there. Yeah, it's not always an easy thing to do. No, so, so thank you so much for that. And so typically this is where we would end the first segment, but because this is the first one and because Jamie wasn't the only person who chose to logos, we're going to do another talking point. 
and jump into, I was reading Erica article on the Society of Petroleum Engineers published an interview that was written by Stephen Forrester and he did it with Nesh. Nesh is the name of the company. It's a new company. Their CEO, Sid Gupta. And what was really interesting, what struck me about this article was he was, he created it solely around the fact that companies have data. Like we have data. Matter of fact, we have so much data out there that we we're kind of in this sea of data. We don't know what to do with it. It becomes this thing where before it was always what you don't know. And now we seem to know so much, but we don't even, the quality of what we know is really the big issue. And so around ESG, you know, there's so many standards, you know, you talked about it before, you know, how do we measure, and especially around things that are hard to measure as well. Like how do you measure social impact? You may be able to do diversity metrics or something like that, but how do you really know? And then how do you measure data? And then once you have it, how do we know we're all playing with the same data set? Because it doesn't take much to really mess up that data. Right. One, I think this is a perfect transition from Jamie. She talked a lot about acquisitions. She talked a lot about due diligence in the M&A world. And that's all data-driven. We're trying to gather data about a target, and decide whether or not there are purchase price issues, valuation issues that we're dealing with, right? But you're spot on. We have so much data at this point, but are we able to process the data, present the data, organize it in such a way that it's meaningful to third parties that can use it. Okay. So as we talk about the ESG universe, I think one of the big complaints we've seen from everybody, especially on the corporate side over the last couple of years, is they feel like they're just drinking from a fire hose. There's so many different frameworks, so many different ways of doing things, and they just can't wrap their head around it. We're starting to see some initiatives from GRI and SASB and others that are kind of coming together. Let's find a universal framework that we can funnel all of this data into a universal framework, like you see for financial statements, right? So, I mean, that's ultimately the long-term goal is to have something under an assurance model where the company can actually come together, gather their data, whether it's on environmental issues, whether it's on social issues or whatever, pull it all together in a unified format that everybody uses. Because the key to data and the key to be people being able to use data is not only that it's accurate and complete, but that it's comparable. And so if you've got multiple systems and multiple frameworks, Nothing makes sense. And so we're, we're pushing in that direction, but that's certainly where we're headed. And so just to go back a second. So GRI is the Global Reporting Initiative. There's, there's groups like them there's, that use this. And I was just reading, what made me think of that too was, uh, to that point, I was reading, they published, they, they put this, that new standard out and they put something like 45 different documents. And I looked at one of them and it was just the glossary. It was like 28 pages of just the basic terms. And the one that stood out to me, as I was telling you before, was, how they just define what a child is like based on an age. It was it, you know, anything, anybody over 15 was considered an adult. So it's just those data sets and even how you define those metrics where those standards are. So when you refer to a child or refer to right. contamination or whatever this level is around data, we, we all assume what it means. We sometimes we don't know what that standard actually applies to. Right. And so we don't have comparable data. If we're not all using the same system, just imagine financial statements and imagine there was something there were three other systems besides just GAP. I mean, imagine the nightmare it would be to compare all that data and for capital providers, for investors, for people that are doing M&A deals to try to figure out, all right, what is this company really trying to tell me? Well, that same issue presents itself in the ESG world. And we got to figure it out. No doubt. So as fate would have it, just a bit, the other person in the contest that looked over and said, what if you combine those two logos to make one was Stephen Forrester. And so we couldn't, just do one because they both they both said this. So Stephen is actually here. Stephen is here to talk to us about data because he knows a few things about it. He's the content development manager at Gyro Data, which is a precision well bore surveying company. Prior to that, he spent a little over five years at National Oil Varco, ending his time there as their content strategy manager. He has a bachelor's and a master's in English and English literature from the University of Houston, 
go Cougs. And he's been a volunteer on the editorial board of the Society of Petroleum Engineers for the last four years. So Stephen, he knows a bit about information, content, data. You work for a company called Gyro Data. Tell us when you hear about data and the, and the issues with it and not something like Nesh's, Nesh's article, what comes to mind and how can we utilize it and understand it a little bit better? Sure. Well, thanks for having me on today, Sean. Really appreciate it. And shout out to OGGN as well for being a great platform. When I think of data, especially going back to the Nesh article with Sid, for example, one of his big things was we have so much data and the amount of time that it takes to do anything of value with this, especially conventionally, is is astronomical, right? And so the issue, I think, with really both data in the oil field sense, as far as what we're doing with projects in the field and whatnot, but also, yes, to ESG is the need to have sources of data that can be compared, like we just mentioned, and also to have standards that align with larger kind of company and societal goals. And so when I think about ESG, a lot of the problem right now is None of this stuff is measurable. It differs from company to company. Some companies don't even have anything, particularly private companies that have less stringent reporting requirements. And so when when it comes to that, a lot of it ends up just being borderline pandering where we talk about planting trees or we built a park for some kids. And yeah, community impact is important. It's the we support the communities where we live and work. Everybody, we've all put that in the investor relations stuff. But it's really more about what is the tangible impact and what is actually happening in the world based on what your company is doing. And to that, I think, yeah, until we get to that point, like Sid was arguing, that we need a way to bring this all together in a way that makes sense, that reduces the time it takes, and then that we can present it outward to stakeholders to company executives and boards, to to people in general, we have a ways to go with that, and definitely a need for change. And it seems like it's going to be it's going to be hard. I think I would dare dare I say impossible to get to a point where we're like, okay, it's all clean, it all makes sense. Now you can trust it. So in the meantime, so maybe a takeaway for some of the listeners around data and what you deal with around content. What would you say is kind of a, a helpful kind of litmus test that you use around data because. It's not just garbage in, garbage out, but what if it's just garbage out because it's so complicated and, and how do you even know what you're measuring? Like you said, if a company, no, if it, look, my wife's in the world of development around philanthropy, it, it can make amazing differences and change lives. But if a $5 million donation to something or just a straight number that you measure community impact, is that, that's not necessarily 100% accurate of the impact that it makes, even because it, it could be more than that in terms of the, the immeasurable impact. So all that to be said, whenever you hear some of these things that are going on around data in the ESG world, or even data in general out in the other world, do you, do you use kind of a rule of thumb or something that you try to do to make sure that the data is accurate? Well, I mean, as far as data in general, we have a lot of different things we do, at least at my company, and then kind of oil field specific in general, comparing error models and, and things like that. I would say for ESG, I'm not sure that I have the answer. I think it's probably too complicated at this point. And really, I think even the step to take before we even approach kind of large scale standardization and consolidation of reporting styles and and things like that and kind of getting rid of third party auditors constantly having to go back to companies and instead having corporate internal standards that make sense. I mean, I really think the first step is to even 
understand what ESG means for these companies, right? And like I mentioned, you hear a lot of talk of certain things. Divesting assets is a big one. Well, we're we're divesting X amount of our oil and gas production assets. So we're going to decrease production by so many barrels. So we're green now. And we talked about this the other day, and I think it was Darren Woods who said, look, if we divest from our portfolio in an effort to kind of promote that we're going green, quote, quote, green, those assets don't cease to exist. They're just going somewhere else. And so nothing is changing in the world except we're hoping that we can kind of slide by by saying that we did this. And so really, the first step, at least I think, would be sincerity around doing this and then more collaboration and knowledge sharing to make sure that when ESG is a topic that companies are pursuing wholeheartedly, that they can actually have something measurable and and worthwhile. I think we hit on two huge things that have held back the industry. One, we can use the term greenwash if we want, but that's what a lot of people on the outside perceive what the oil and gas industry has done, which is kind of what you were hitting on. The other thing is materiality. There is so much information out there, but for the investor community, they're worried about a smaller subset. And when you think about SASB and some of the other organizations, they're focused on, all right, what's financially material? Yeah, it's great that you contributed $5 million to build the park. And we love that. And and every CEO would say, hey, that's important for our community involvement that impacts our employees, that impacts their kids and everything. So we, we want to be a part of that. But the investor community says, hey, what I really need to understand is how this is going to impact your balance sheet. How is this going to impact your income statement? That park's probably not going to be tangibly measurable in a way we can look at that. But there are a lot of things that the SASB and other are focused on. And that's what the investors are really worried about. So we have to find a way to make sure that there's no perception of greenwashing anymore. And we also need to find, and I think this is what you hit on, Stephen, is that we need to find the material things and we need to communicate those better. So just for the reference, SASB is a... All right. So, so if we're talking about SASB, we're talking about the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board. That is the organization that most of the investor community relies on. When you think about BlackRock, when you think about State Street, when you think about the hedge funds, they are looking to SASB as their, to them, that is standard. the golden standard for what it should look like. When you think about GR and the Global Reporting Initiative, which we're really looking at is more of a corporate kind of focus. Most of my clients actually use GRI, but the GRI universe is much broader. It picks up the park. It picks up other things that are happening that the investor community may not care about. And what's been so good is that just recently you've seen GRI and SASB come together and say, hey, we need to find an, a common ground. We need to work together to come up with a reporting standard that works for everyone so that we can get to this place where we have comparable data, where that data can be audited and we can have assurance around it. That way, decision makers, whether they're inside in the C-suite, whether they're investors, whether they're people doing M&A due diligence, can look at the data and say, no, this is right. This is usable, just like the financial statements. That's the goal. So as, as we get to wrap up, Jamie, I'll look over to you for just kind of a last minute comment around, was there anything around the data set that, that Stephen talked about that kind of stood out to you? I know as a land analyst, you think you were telling me the other day about going out into courthouses and like looking up old documents that were basically handwritten and famous people that were in the 20s. Was there anything at the data side that stood out to you? No, it's a little different in California. So the courthouse is not typically used in California anymore. <laughs> Everything has gone digital. So FYI, I don't know. I'm not familiar with your realm of expertise, but if you are pursuing to go that route, it's always nice for everyone. And then you could as we're in COVID, work remotely anywhere. So Stephen, as we wrap up on the ethical side, was there anything, I mean, obviously data, there's, I think of the phrase, 
lies, damn lies and statistics, <laughs> right? And so in terms, because data can be used ethically and unethically. Yeah, for sure. I mean, how we present things is very important and kind of in line with everything else we've been saying. I mean, when we control the data itself, both how it's collected and how it comes back to us, how it's analyzed, and and then ultimately how it's presented, it's ripe for misuse. And so that definitely necessitates some sort of check and balance on this kind of activity. And some companies don't have that. And so to an earlier point, you get these kind of reports or statements that have things on them that don't actually add value in any way. There's nothing tangible. Referencing the park, for example, I mean, that's that's phenomenal. No one's going to argue that that's not good. But as far as from ESG, something like that, a community investment is is more of a public relations type activity, for example. How do you measure something that doesn't generate revenue? You can't You can't quantify opinion. You can't quantify image. So that complicates it. But potentially also makes it easier because you can focus more narrowly on things that do have some kind of tangible impact or something that you can measure in a reasonable way. Gotcha. Last thought, Eric, anything to take away? I just want to thank both guests for coming here. We're, we're super excited about the show. Glad you could, could join us. I'm glad y'all, well, I wanted a, a picture that didn't have Sean in it, but that's fine. <laughs> you guys mixed two together. I thought that was great. We can take another one. <laughs> hey, I was told to wear a polo and I see some button down yeah. over here. I, I feel a little cheated, but <laughs> yeah, he, he will always sandbag on you. I'm surprised he didn't wear a tuxedo. Today. <laughs> <You're right. laughs> that's why it's an audio, not a video. <laughs> yes. Of All right. So everybody out there, thank you for tuning into this first segment it's a little bit longer than what we're going to do from now on. Now we're going to say, first of all, thank you, or say, last of all, thank you to Jamie. Thank you to Stephen for taking the time to do this and to be a part of this, not just clicks on a post somewhere. Obviously, these are two people in the industry with experience, understanding, and a knowledge in, in stake and a stakeholder aspect and a shareholder aspect in the game. Thanks for coming on and being a part of this in this first one. So now we're going to head into the second and third segment. We're really excited. The first case study we're going to feature is going to be with our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Can't wait to hear that story. And then the insight to follow from a subject matter expert thought leader to come in and tell us a little bit more about it. Stay tuned. Enjoy the break. Hey, Sean, quick note about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. If you think Hewlett Packard is all about printers, think again. Hewlett Packard Enterprise, HPE, is the edge to cloud platform as a service company. They help oil and gas industry leaders solve environmental, social, and governance issues by sharing industry best practices and leveraging their expertise. Their team of technologists have decades of experience in IT sustainability, efficiency, and the circular economy. HPE can help reduce lifecycle costs and your company's impact on the environment while achieving greater profitability through sustainability. Sounds great, Eric. And do you want to find out more? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT, or you can click on the link in the show notes of this episode for more information and to download their white paper about it. Welcome to the case study segment of the podcast. Eric, as I said yesterday, we, we, we had a chance to tour the Textmark refinery, which we're going to be talking about today. The case study is about the refinery of the future. And this, this story is exactly why we're doing this podcast. We're so excited about having this as our first one, as, as the one to throw out there that is the essence of why we're doing this podcast to begin with, which is defining exactly what businesses in oil and gas are doing to address environmental, social, and governance issues. We got a chance to tour it yesterday. We've been talking to a lot of people over the last couple of days. Before we get started, I want to ask you, give me one kind of high-level takeaway that you've had from all this. I think the most important takeaway I've, I've taken from this experience so far is when you 
when you go out there today and you hear about ESG, the publicity, most of the attention is given to these to the super majors, to the large public companies that are making net zero commitments and doing all this other stuff. And that's where all the media attention goes to. But to be at Textmark and to see a small privately owned refinery, 40 plus employees, something that they took over in the 70s, originally built in the 1940s, and they have transformed this place. To see somebody take a leadership position in the ESG, the energy evolution that we talk about all the time, and to see it coming from a smaller player, a family player, rather than one of the large corporates. It's inspiring, which is, I think, one of the aspects of our show that we want to do. We want to inspire people. And I certainly have been inspired in the last 48 hours talking to the Techsmart team and everybody that's been involved in the refinery of the future process. Yeah, and I think for, for me, it was definitely the first thing out of the mouth of, of Doug Smith, who's the CEO of Techsmart, was about people. That At the end of the day, all the technology, all the amazing things that we can do it really started with the people, not just in his company, but the people in the surrounding community here in Galena Park, where which is just outside of Houston, which is in the typical Gulf Coast region around that's known for refineries and, and, and processing and stuff like that, which growing up in this area, traveling by this place all my life, and if you've been by these places, you just see a bunch of pipes, a bunch of stuff. You see mechanical equipment and you don't even know what's going on or who's a part of that, but there's human beings, our fellow men and women that are a part of that process. And so to hear from the top down, Doug come in and basically just from the very get-go show, not, not only talk about it, but then as we got to explain, which we'll talk about here in a bit, the way that they integrated this process to happen, that they got buy-in all the way down to the, to the edge level of a human standpoint. It wasn't just a bunch of people in management who thought this would be a great idea to save a few bucks or to make a few bucks. And so it's really, that's what stood out for me. And so before, and as we're doing that, as we're rolling this out, we're going to talk to this, there is a team, a family of companies that have been a part of that. And one of the one of the big players, a player we're going to start with in the beginning is Hewlett Packard Enterprise. And so we're here with uh, Peter Moser, who's the chief technologist and IoT and AI strategist there at HPE. He's got 24 years with the company. He started out in IT consulting in consulting for about seven and a half years. And his original company he started with in terms of HPE was back in the compact days, for those of you that may not know. So we just dated Peter is what we did. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a respect of the age, definitely not a pity, but he's got a business degree with a minor in finance from Sam Houston State, master's in science and management from Houston Baptist University. And he's one of those guys that kind of reminds me of when 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 the old wise man on the hill starts talking you kind of just which is part of that beyond so being around for a while you just kind of listen and take for granted what they're saying and, and and take that moment so peter as we get started we'd like to start out with so tell us about the opportunity around the refinery what was brought to hpe's table in terms of the opportunity to address this situation so that's a great point. The, the journey actually began with just a personal relationship with you know, our oil and gas team with Doug Smith. And we're talking to Doug about what we're doing with Industrial Internet of Things, our discovery lab, our IoT discovery lab. And Doug thought, yeah, it'd be interesting to, to go and see and learn what's going on with technology. And from that visit and what he, Doug and his team experienced, it really stimulated a whole train of thought because at that same time, coincidentally, Doug's company had experienced an increase in their deductible due to their, their maintenance integrity program not being as well documented and implemented as the insurer had wanted. So the timing couldn't have been better. And so that was kind of the impetus of the journey is Doug had a business problem, coincidentally, that was his premiums were going up because of his mechanical integrity program. 
not being sufficient, and then learning the art of the possible, if you will, at HP in our discovery lab, say, you could do that. And it all started with the pump demo. So obviously, so the, the journey starts, we step into that, which is always uh, one of the big steps in the process. But as soon as you do, right, you run into like issues. And so I know one of the big issues that you recognize and that the opportunity was dictated by was it wasn't going to be just HPE. So can you tell us a little bit about, it became a collaborative effort with other companies. And so can you take us down the road of how, how you, how HPE processed that and some of the decisions you made around that? So in the industrial internet of things and really in a lot of solutions today, no one company can do it all. And one of the core tenets to our strategy, HPE as a company, is our partner ecosystem. Absolutely critical. And it's not just your traditional partners, you know, because HPE's viewed mostly as like an IT company, you know, the data center. Well, industrial internet of things is anything but the data center, right? It's all at the edge. And, and so that partner ecosystem includes OEMs like the ABBs, the Siemens, the Schneider Electric. So you have this cast of partners that are very different than you're used to working with. You know, they had large systems integrators like Deloitte and Accenture. Then you, you had top flight ISV companies like PTC. You, you had sensor companies you know, that you're, you're working with. And, and so it was a fabric of partners necessary to deliver an outcome, several outcomes actually, that Texmark eventually identified they wanted to achieve. And, and that, that's really, in our opinion, it's going to be key for success where customers can get the best of breed solution, like from national instruments and partners like that, OSI soft, where they can really solve their problems the best way possible with the right partners. It's one of those partners you, you haven't mentioned, but is, it was a huge player, is CBT. And, Absolutely. And so CBT is a company that we actually happen to have. Kelly Ireland, who is their founder and CEO on the line with us, and she's going to join us for the conversation as well, because we just felt that was part of this synergistic aspect that uh, we couldn't have all companies, we couldn't have National Instruments and everybody else in Schneider Electric, but we felt it was a great tandem between CBT and between you, especially with some other things that CBT is doing still, which we'll talk about later. So we have Kelly here today, and to tell a little bit about her, she has been in technology for 42 years and just got done talking to her. She started cutting her teeth in the early 70s in Las Vegas as a programmer on some of the original software languages and stuff like that. So it's really awesome to listen, to listen to her talk. She worked for GE and some other companies. And so she became a pioneer, not just from a software standpoint, but obviously from a, I mean, we, part of the big aspect of this podcast around ESG is diversity and inclusion. And so it's a pleasure, Kelly, to have you on here to tell us a little bit about your y'all's role. And so tell us as as a company like HP identifies this need for this IoT aspect, they reach out to you. So what was it about CBT that could fill that gap in terms of what HP needed? Thanks for having me, Sean. And like we talked about before, it was the journey. And what was so interesting is as the ecosystem, HPE brought in this ecosystem and, and did a phenomenal job. But what we learned along the way is there wasn't someone that was integrating amongst the ISVs and the OEMs. It was a lesson learned as we dove into building out the solutions. We were brought in by HPE specifically for Connected Worker to, to lead that solution and build out that use case. What we found along the way working with Peter and the team was everybody was struggling a little bit. And what happened was kind of the creation of this new moniker called Domain Expert Integrator. OT and IT convergence is very different than just IT. And if you look at it from an IT viewpoint, everybody approached it and went, 
oh, you take the hardware, you take the software, you integrate it, and you go. Well, that happens on the IT side. That does not happen on the OT IT side. Real big lesson learned was this was a lot more difficult than it looked like from the onset, but it was all about working and getting those ecosystem partners to contribute together to start. These were strange fellows working together. The OT side didn't normally work with the IT side. So it, and, and you're really talking different cultures too. You're talking very different cultures. So getting those cultures to work together, getting those ecosystem partners to work together and kind of being that middleman that said, okay, I need you for this. I need you for this. And let's put this together and make it work. Yes, ma'am. So Peter, give us an example as y'all went started going in this road. What's a problem that you didn't expect to face along the way that y'all were able to solve? When you look at the scope of transfer, digital transformation, right? It, it could take a lot of different paths. And, and some of the challenges that we faced that we didn't anticipate is how does IT technologies, which are being applied to the OT domain that Kelly just talked about, the operations technology domain, how is it going to behave in a highly metallic environment? Well, a lot of people don't know that answer. And so we discovered that you have to accommodate that very metallic environment with all these pipes and towers and tanks and tuning the IT technology to match and fit this complex environment, this class one, div one, class one, division one has safety, right? You have to accommodate that as well. So there's a lot of variables that you have to accommodate that you don't normally deal with in the data center or a carpeted area like a remote branch office. So I'll give you an example. When you put up a Wi-Fi network around a plant for connectivity to workers and to sensors, you have to tune the antennas for that signal, right? Because it's very reflective with that part of the spectrum. So these are just some of the nuances. Data packets being dropped, not to get too terribly technical, but we have gateways collecting data from the sensors and they're transmitting it wirelessly to the access points that are sitting up high above in the plant. Heat can really cause those gateways to have some problems and just start dropping data packets. So you have to kind of cool them off. So you put a fan that pulls out the hot air and keeps them cooler to solve that problem. But these are not things that you can predict in advance with traditional means. And this is where the experience comes in that CBT brings to the table is they, they've been down this road and they've experienced these unusual anomalies and then how to address them. So Kelly, off, off to you. So in terms of, so obviously you can solve some of these problems that are unexpected on their end, but was there anything on the CBT side that you all had to address that you didn't expect for this project? I think the biggest thing was the ecosystem partners that we had included in the group. Doug's approach from the beginning was all about, well, I want this to be a place where people can come and look and see what's going on and, and really for the community for everybody to come and look at. And when you have this big of a group of ecosystem partners, as we started adding on the different solutions and the ecosystem grew, in some cases, to a total of 24 partners at one time, it was going through the management of so many different resources. I mean, we could have anticipated that would happen, but we everybody was so enthusiastic about the solutions and what we were doing and what we were creating, not only for the industry, but the environment and the community and everything else. And I think it was 
just getting past the struggles of that's a lot of management of a lot of companies and a lot of resources. So Peter, help us understand. So what actually has been created? So give us kind of an idea of what is the refinery of the future? And what was the evolution and the transformation that happened relative to the project? So Doug's vision was because the refinery of the future, TechSmart Chemicals, let's be clear, TechSmart Chemical is competing on a global scale. Even though they're a privately held company in Galena Park, Texas, they're competing with refineries making the same product that they make across the globe. So for the future of TechSmart and their viability, Doug wanted to take a bold move to really position TechSmart to be a focal point for the industry, a shining star, if you will, a beacon on the hill on what is the art of the possible for the industry and what can be done to take the industry to the next level. And Doug, being a pioneer in my mind, is saying, I'm willing to take that step. Because if you think about it, TechSmart doesn't have the resources that the super majors have, these hundreds of billions of dollar market cap companies. So Doug was taking a, a deep personal risk for his company to go through a digital transformation through so many different dimensions of his business. And when you get a, a sampling of the use cases, I think everybody that understands this industry will appreciate, well, those are some pretty bold steps. You know, from distributed control systems being upgraded and replaced to their mechanical integrity systems. These are pretty big systems of record. You know, your historian, these are core business systems that are all being changed. Oh, then you're going to add in connected worker and video analytics and all this other new stuff that all now has to be integrated. This is profound because in this industry, most of these systems are pretty much islands. They're silos, and they do their jobs, they do them well, but they're not really integrated. And this is where the challenge comes in, is how can I start getting information from all these systems of record and get a better view of my business operations so that I can be more efficient and also be more profitable, but most importantly, be safe. Help keep my employees safer. So there's a lot of different aspects that you have to look at it when you're dealing with operations technology versus just IT in a data center. So Kelly, over to you for the next one. One of the things we like to look at is, so now that we've gone through the journey in terms of those three steps, it's been implemented now for a couple of years. Maybe you can give us an idea, a little bit of the timeline. But since then, can you tell us what the application process has been like since this has taken root? One of the things I've heard you say in some of the videos that you're really proud of about this is that it's not something, it's not a conceptual thing. It's something that's actually happening so give us an idea, take us through a little bit of, of what's been happening since this has hit the road. Absolutely. You say hit the road. It's like we've talked about, it's a journey. And Peter had previously said something about ideation and innovation. And what we've seen is even though we've put these into production, which that alone has given us so much experience and knowledge of really what it's like to integrate it into a working refinery. That was one of the things that was so important about having this at Texmark was being able to put it in production. What we have found with every single solution is we continue to iterate. So we continue to build out, even like with video as a sensor or video analytics. That was initially, the initial use case was it's in the channel, you can't close the fencing because the train cars are delivered. They're worried about coyotes and for the health and safety of the employees. Well, that leapfrogged from not only looking for coyotes and training it to look for coyotes, but 
we had the workers come back with, well, what about this and what about that? So now the iterations of video analytics by itself is now down worker, transient traffic in the rail cars, rail cars moving when they should not. And so as you can see, the iteration is not only something that we plan to do, but it's lessons learned along the way that are things we didn't even know were possible. Wow. We try to qualify this from an ESG standpoint in terms of the application. There seems to be so many elements of all three that are taking root here. Peter, give us an example of one of those three that stood out to you in terms of the application. Well, one of the big use cases for Techsmark in Refinery Futures Connected Worker, it's all about health and safety. So when you think about the job today, well, not today, but prior, they take a clipboard and they, they do a walk down and they'll look at X number of pumps and motors a day and then they'll do the next number the next day, et cetera. And so one of the things they want to do is automate this process with censoring critical pumps and motors, the ones that you don't want to go down, and, and reduce the amount of time employees spent actually in the plant doing the walk downs. That helps with health and safety. Well, with that, with Connected Worker, when you start adding wearable technologies to that, now you start freeing up their hands. Because if you've looked at a plant worker, it's a Batman utility belt, right? They've got their radio, they've got the tool belts, they've got all this equipment on, which adds weight. And then now they have to use their hands to talk on the radio and things like that. So now you have voice activation. You have video on board with every single worker in the plant so that they can walk up to something flip down the arm, and now they have video and audio capabilities to communicate with anybody else in the plant or if you wanted a third party. So this has really helped enhance not only the productivity of the workers, but also the health and safety. I'll give you a real example of creativity. So when they load the rail loading cars, DCPD, dicyclopedidine, has a very strong smell. And they have to verify that everything was properly sealed. Well, to do that, as an added precaution, Textmark would have a digital camera and take a picture of every single hatch, if you will, on the rail car just to prove it wasn't leaking, right, to verify it for their own personal records, but also for further down the road. Well, that camera got dropped because before the workers would hold the rail with one hand and the, the camera in the other. Okay, so visualize this. And so now... You know, Carlos, I'll just use Carlos's name. Carlos is a really smart young man. He goes, you know what? I can use this wearable technology voice command to tell it to take pictures or video, and then I can annotate it with an audio narrative. So Carlos goes out there, minus the camera, and now with both hands free, be able to do the same job function and actually enhance it with the audio annotation. So this is a way of taking, like Kelly cited earlier, a use case connector worker. So when they do their, their walk downs in the plant, doing it more safely and more productively to enhance it, to do other things you never thought about. And Carlos is a real person. We've seen Carlos his picture. We've heard he's, this isn't a figment or some gnome, you know, some gnome <laughs> de plum or, or gnome de plume. He's a real person. And so Kelly, on your end, from an ESG environmental social governance application, has anything stood out from you in terms of this process, this project? Absolutely. From the get-go, one of Doug Smith's real focuses was his community, Galena Park, and workforce development, struggling to recruit people within his community. And the education, this is a new territory. He was a pioneer. This is a new territory. And first and foremost, he's an educator by some of his historical employment. And his whole thing was, Kelly, think about having this as being someplace where we can have internships or expose 
high school kids or even community college kids to the new technologies that are out there. This OTIT convergence in industrial IoT is very new. And a lot of the universities, a lot of the community colleges are not teaching this yet. I mean, it's very, very new. And they're, they're even struggling on how to get this integrated into their studies and their curriculum. I can tell you with Doug's push and support, we have worked together with HPE and CBT and Texmark, and we are working with the Greater Houston Partnership, with CORD, with Workforce of the Future, to figure out how to integrate what's going on at Texmark, not only to showcase to corporations and in the industrial community, but to the greater Houston community of how we can utilize this in an educational format and help these kids get a head start and be able to get jobs into this industry throughout Houston and, and Texas and the world, really. One of the things I want to follow up on, and we've used a lot of glowing words about Doug Smith, and based on meeting him, I think they're 100% true. We've heard the word pioneer, we've heard visionary, focused on community and people. And one of the things that I think is amazing is we think about a digital transformation, really a cultural transformation inside a very old refinery. It took leadership from Doug to make that happen. It, it took a top-down approach where somebody had fully embraced what needed to happen and then fully embraced his people to buy in and help him execute on it. But one of the things I think that's also amazing, I, I, Peter, I want you to hit on this a little bit more, is, again, small privately owned company, 40-something employees, but some of the largest companies in the world over the last couple of years, Fortune 50 companies, have walked through this facility to understand Doug's vision and what he accomplished. And so talk a little bit about that. Talk about kind of extrapolating this out to others and, and some of the, I think in all honesty, I think some people probably had their hair blown back that Doug and Texmark took this huge business risk and have hit a home run with it. That's absolutely true. So one of the things that Doug and Linda Salinas, who's the VP of operations, have done an exceptional job of doing is sharing their experiences, good and bad, with the digital transformation very openly and honestly. To your point, you'd be surprised at the, the large companies that come and visit more than once. TechSmart Chemicals understand, how did you do this? It's not just a technology change. How did you get your people on board at every level of the organization to embrace this change and not fear it and contribute to it? Because one of the things that people typically don't want to do is change. And now you're taking, as I cited earlier, a clipboard job function, and now it's on a tablet and you're on a wearable device. That's a major transformation for anybody in doing their job. So the natural tendency is for people to reject that sort of change. Well, this is where I think the brilliance of the Textmark leadership team is from the very beginning has included people from every function in the company in the journey. From the visit to HP I mentioned earlier, when Textmark came to visit the Discovery Lab, it, it was a bus full of people. It had 16 people in that bus from every job function, from millwrights to the engineers, everyone coming to learn about this. So what this has done is enabled TechSmart to accelerate the digital transformation because now everybody has, they call it ROTF mentality, refinery of the future mentality. Can we ROTF this? 
That means, can we automate it? Because they don't fear it, because they realize it's not taking their job, it's enhancing their job, it's making it safer, allowing them to do a better job and do more. And it's giving them skills that are future-proofed. You know, the skills that they're learning, the technologies they're learning today will carry them until they retire. So, so Kelly, I want to ask you a question. We've talked a lot about people, culture, all these technology. We've mentioned a few times around the risk, the financial risk from a business standpoint. And the story is always nice to tell after, but help us understand for, as a CEO, as a founder, as somebody who's responsible to make sure that the lights are on, that all, the, all these wonderful sentiments and all the things that we're, we're shooting for that we want to see happen that we believe in can be just stopped in their tracks absolutely if the numbers go red and if the business element doesn't work and if that risk goes too far. There's a real, there's a real pressure on leaders such as yourself out there in terms of a company. And not to speak for Doug, but can you give us a little bit of a context around as a leader of a company and a founder, what that process is like and some illustrations around this example and why it's so important that the business side has to work too. Absolutely. And I can speak for Doug because Texmark and CBT are kind of parallel. We're around 45, 50 people. We approached it the same way. It was an investment. This ecosystem of partners led by Hewlett Packard Enterprise, everybody was in it to showcase their solutions and to show that this all worked together. But this wasn't a paying job. This was an investment by everybody involved in this project. And even with CBT, it was a gamble. I had times throughout the last three years where I had people looking at me within my company going, what the heck are we doing? Is this a smart investment? I would say I looked at it. And when I had my talk with Peter, with Gavin, with the whole group at Hewlett Packard Enterprise of what this meant and what this was going to end up being, it was to me worth the gamble. It was worth the investment. It was an educated gamble and I was willing to do it. And I know Doug was the same way. This is something he had more motivation with his insurance and having his deductible raised that he had real problems he had to solve. I looked at it as a journey with the rest of the ecosystem that this was coming. This was the future just like cloud was back five, 10 years. This was the new frontier and 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 it was worth the bet. I think what was really interesting is we thought it would be adopted sooner. So, and it kept pushing out. A lot of things happened. I mean, you talk about environment, hurricanes. (laughs) A hurricane happened. When we planned this out, Peter, I believe when we first looked at it, we thought six months, maybe 12. We're into three years with still things not having been fully delivered, but it was all those lessons learned through it. And it was a lot longer journey than we expected. But I can tell you from being very educated about what the challenges were, and not only the challenges, but understanding with HPE and the ecosystem partners, what the solutions could be and what they brought to ESG, what they brought to not only the communities and the corporations, but all the customers down the line. It was well worth it. It has been slow. But with COVID, we've seen an absolute ramp because some of the solutions we've built out play very well to engaging and engaging the frontline workers, the connected worker, the video analytics, things that could be used very well in quarantine, in where you can't be next to a worker, where you can't have management by your side while you have to deploy somebody by himself. I think that was one of the the key things with this. Peter, I'm going to 
well, one of the takeaways when we were here yesterday is actually seeing some of the tech. And so I want to take a step back and maybe talk a little about, Kelly just mentioned cloud and now we're, and I know that the cool world now is edge and I won't profess to understand any of this, but <laughs> talk a little bit about the technology foundation that's here. We've talked a little bit about the fact that the place is blanketed in Wi-Fi and that there was challenges there trying to tune. I mean, I've been to my house trying to move those little tuners around on my little Wi-Fi thing. So I can only imagine how much of a nightmare it was here. Let's talk about the rest of the, the technology foundations here. And then I would love to spend a little time talking about Connected Worker because I think it's probably one of the coolest things. So one of the key things is affordability. It's great to talk about all these use cases and all the stuff you want to do, but if you can't afford it, it's for naught. So that's why it's so key to have an ideation workshop and get all the ideas on the table, prioritize them, and then find the commonality because there is commonality. And that's exactly what we did. We said, okay, when we looked across the spectrum of use cases, how much of it is using the same basic technology? Really about 95% of it. So that allowed us to create an architectural framework that would support a majority of these use cases, which made it more affordable. And that was key. And, And so having somebody like a CBT that can come in and look at the IT side and the OT side and find those synergies is critical. Because if you don't have that experience and that insight, you tend to create a bunch of bespoke solutions, which is what the industry has today and it's part of the problem. So this, we've started with a framework of communications. How do I get access to the data? That was key. And wireless is far more cost effective than wired. Because you can imagine running wires in a chemical plant is very expensive, like $7,000 versus maybe $1,500 for wireless. So we started with a wireless foundation wireless sensors. And from that, well, there were technically originally wireless sensors, but we started with censoring that allowed us to communicate through a gateway wirelessly to the access point. And then with that, to aggregate that on a platform was very dense, that didn't take up a lot of space. And we put it into an edge data center because they don't really have a data center class capabilities here at a chemical plant. So this gave them Texmark a foundation from which to build all these other use cases without having to change out anything in the environment. You you just start adding to that incrementally the same basic configuration. So this on your training costs, it's saved on training costs because it's the same common stuff. You have management of all this, the same common management platform. All this really mattered in creating an affordable foundation, technical foundation to deploy these different use cases when they could scale. I think probably the coolest thing we saw, and I just want to talk about it because it's super cool, is the helmet with the real wear technology. And and Kelly, talk to us a little bit about, and this hits on so many areas, whether it's employee safety, whether it's efficiency and everything else, but this idea that you actually have an employee can walk out, have a helmet on that's got video capability, it's voice activated. One of the other coolest things I saw were the QRC codes. I think we're also used to now, at least in Texas, going into restaurants and you don't get a menu anymore. You just got a QRC code and you can pull up the <laughs> menu. Well, essentially, you can walk all over this plant and have your headgear identify a piece of equipment and it brings up schematics and it brings up current. What's that pump currently running at? What's that vibration center, sensor telling us? The ability to integrate all that technology in a hands-free, voice-activated Ability to communicate with other people. With. Kelly, just talk a little bit more about that about that technology and real wear and what they bring to the table on, on kind of transforming what happens inside the fence around here. Absolutely. 
the most interesting thing with Connected Worker was the ideation and the iteration of so many different things that we could include and add to the capabilities. We talked about Carlos. Carlos started using it. It was almost weekly that Carlos was coming back going, I have another idea. We can utilize the Connected Worker. What we saw transpire through everything, all the different capabilities, like you said, being able to see as if you were standing in the control center, because that's the capability it gave to them on the connected worker. But what we saw transpire in the last nine months with COVID was actually how this can transform multiple industries. You're the pioneer here at Textmark. We're showing that you can actually do this in production. You can showcase the ROI. One of the things that was so that my team got very passionate about is in IT, you would go deliver infrastructure and you you knew you were putting compute and storage and everything out at a facility or a company in a data center, but you didn't really get to see what that did. With Connected Worker and with the other solutions, we actually got to see what business outcome there was. And not only that is we were able to help quantify what the ROI was. In the one that Peter talked about where they took the photos of the hatches, what we found out walking that, completely walking through that process, the time saved was almost 89%. That basically gave you an ROI of weeks, not months, not years, but weeks to pay that back and to showcase, and that's something that Linda, when we took it back to Linda and started showing her, because she's like, Kelly, walk me through the ROI, how you came up with it. And when I did, she said, you're absolutely right. And we were able to do that with the vast majority of the solutions, but especially on Connected Worker. And I, I think what's most fun about this is seeing that business outcome, getting to see how the workers were using this and how it made a difference in their jobs. Sean, one of the things that you and I talk about, you can be passionate about sustainability, but if your business itself is not in fact sustainable, then it's largely a waste (laughs) of time because eventually you're going to drive it off in the ditch and be done. And so Kelly, to hear you talk about ROI and talk about the financial side of it, I think that's the energy industry as a whole has been struggling with capital retreating from the business mandate from continuing capital providers to say, hey, we we don't want you to necessarily be a growth business anymore that just spends all the money that you can find. We'd like to see some free cash flow. We'd like to see you actually run a profitable business. And so if we want to focus on sustainability, we've got to find a way to be sustainable ourselves. And and to so again, to see some of that ROI, to see it translate, to see the tech translate into not only employee safety and community involvement, these other things, but actually, hey, this is a bottom line. And so when Kelly was talking about Linda, I, I love that Linda finally walked in the room and said, okay, this is all great. What's the ROI? <laughs> but what's the ROI, please? And what was awesome is that they were able to CBT and the rest of the team would say, yep, here we go. And and we saw that in the presentation yesterday, literally significant time savings across multiple functions that are being performed. So safety, money, all coming together. Yeah, maintenance, maintenance applications, stuff like that. So we're getting ready to wrap up a little bit, but before we do, I wanted to ask Peter, one of the things we we were talking about, one of the words we heard earlier, we can use here, especially on the HP side is edge. And it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it really seems like what that is or what, what that is trying uh, trying to describe for people in terms of opportunity, back to the Carloses of the world and the operators, isn't to replace the edge. Because really the, the people before, I was just talking to Doug Smith about it, for a long time we humans have been that edge. We're the ones at the pump looking at it. We're the ones looking at the corroded pipe. It's, so that human being is the edge. 
And then the idea is we have this romantic notion that technology comes in and replaces the person and becomes the edge. But it seems to me like there's more of a collaborative effort that the real opportunity is to bring that data center out from this remote area that is just sitting there and bring it into this practical application that actually allows you to process at the edge of the interface between equipment and people so that your pumps are more efficient, so that you don't have the leak, so that you, I mean, this pixelated video getting picked up, which allows the human to then integrate. I may not have seen that as an operator, but because it's telling me that, hey, there's something there, I can now work with technology to solve that problem. Whereas before, it's just out there doing what it's doing and nobody knows. So maybe talk a little bit about what that edge computing side is like, and, and, and do I have that right? Is that correct? It is. Intelligent edge actually is, th- think of it as taking data center class capabilities that run businesses and pushing it to the edge where most of the data is going to be created or is being created going forward, and that's per IDC and others. And a lot of that is artificial intelligence. You know, picking up that pixelation wasn't the human eye. That was an artificial intelligence interpretation of what a video camera detected. So when you think about a lot of this automation, it's going to be artificial or AI-driven. And everybody goes, well, the cloud, the cloud, the cloud. Well, that's great. But when you're kind of running real-time plan operations, that latency is prohibitive. So you have to deal with it as close to where the data is being created. So now as you start adding more and more camera feeds, think about the volume of data you're creating. Are you really going to pipe all that stuff back to a data center somewhere and have it analyzed? It's cost prohibitive. Again, it has to be affordable, right? So the intelligent edge is about taking that data center class capabilities but purpose built for the edge because a chemical plant is not a carpeted area, right? You know, the environmentals here are way different. So you need equipment that's been designed and developed specifically for this type of environment with the temperature range of like zero to 55 C kind of thing that, that has, consumes less power. That's a lot more agile that can do a lot more different things than a, a general purpose server, let's say, for instance, I give you, what do I mean by that? Well, it supports universal LTE cards so that you can manage it through wireless, right, with Wi-Fi or LTE kind of thing. In the data center, you don't need that. You know, different kind of nuances like that. And, and so the intelligent edge is really enabling businesses to accelerate what they can do at the edge. Because a plant, let's say, for instance, that say you're a super major and you have a data center and maybe you're running your operations there. Well, a chemical plant is a 24-7 operation. If they lose connectivity to a data center, they're out of business. So you have to be self-sustainable at the plant level. And that's what the intelligent edge allows businesses to do is to grow and expand beyond their control systems, right? To do all this cool stuff, but do it locally. But you can still tap back into the cloud and the data center but it gives you that resiliency at the edge. Yeah, we could be here for a long time. An amazing episode. Thank you to Peter and Kelly for helping us tell that story. It literally checks all three of the buckets. We've talked about the E, the S, and the G today. And again, for you know, for Doug Smith and the family and the ownership and the leadership here to have the vision as a small player, taking a huge risk as a small player to have that vision to be leaders in this space is amazing. And it's something I've just really enjoyed getting to know more about. Yeah, for sure. So again, Peter, Kelly, thank you so much for the time. We really appreciate it. And we're excited to let you know. So as we go between segments, the next one up is Charlie Stack, who actually works for TechSmart. And Rob Schaefer from CBT is going to come in and give us our insight segment because there's a little bit more we want to talk about around this story. So stay tuned. And let's take a moment to talk about our sponsor, Hewlett Packard Enterprise. 
Technology alone can't solve business problems, but an ecosystem of partners with the right expertise can. HP is proud to partner with business leaders and exceed their goals together. When it comes to ESG, for example, their knowledge and expertise helps oil and gas leaders not only become a force for good, but also increase their business and market value. ESG is a business driver for HP. Let them show you how it can boost investment, win business, attract talent, and future-proof your products from regulatory risk. Want to find out more about how to make your company an ESG success story? Go to www.hpe.com forward slash engage forward slash IOT or click on the link in the show notes for more information and to download HPE's white paper all about it. So welcome to the inside segment. Eric, we just got done with a conversation I always felt was was way too short, but we had to we had to stop somewhere with the case study element around HPE and CBT and this refine, the refinery of the future for TechSmart. As we go into this this aspect of the show, I'm really, really excited about the fact that we have somebody from TechSmart, Charlie Stack, who you're going to find out has got an extensive background around engineering and just, he's kind of that, he's that old, another old wise man on the hill talking about what he knows around these kinds of things. We're also going to be joined by Rob Schaefer here in just a moment from CBT because there's an element of this story this, not just the synergy to make it happen, but the continued partnership around these companies to every day improve, every day collaborate uh, around this refinery. Yeah, what an amazing case study that checked so many boxes. Loved hearing from Peter and from Kelly. And again, what continues to blow me away is the vision that the ownership had here and the leadership had here. Small private company to take that risk and be a leader in this space and an example for multi-billion dollar companies. Really, really a really cool story. And I'm looking forward to just talking to Charlie and Rob and diving a little deeper. Yeah, so as we do that, so a little bit of idea of who Charlie Stack is. He's originally from New York City and he has over 25 years of experience in energy, renewables, food, pharmaceuticals, and agriculture. By profession, he's a licensed professional engineer. He's a graduate with an engineering degree in both mechanical, electrical, and nuclear disciplines, as well as mathematics, multiple degrees from Florida Institute of Technology, the University of Florida, Palm Beach Atlantic University, and the University of Hawaii. So on one coast to the other, all the way to the other side. Specialties in advanced process controls, process automation, machine learning, and all these aspects. It's just a jack of all trades and seems to have just, he has also got a Navy background around him that him and I connected with around the, the military side. He started his time out on a nuclear sub many years ago. Very cool. Yep. So it's his understanding of engineering and problem solving, which is what I've always thought engineering really is, is taking a problem and, and, and addressing it. He has it in space. And we're also going to be joined, as I mentioned, by Rob Schaefer, who's currently the president of CBT. He's got 25 years of experience in IT, primarily in the infrastructure side. He, he's, he had a stint at HP as well, as, as starting his own company, Systems Technology Associates. Before that, did, this, as a preface, did about 20 years in the healthcare world as well. He's a Long Beach State graduate with a BS in Marketing and Business Administration, grew up in the Bay Area, and lives currently in the beautiful area of Southern California. Great guests to have, and we're excited about it. And let me just say, if, if you have a problem on a nuclear sub, you need to figure out how to fix it, right? <laughs> well, it's always the thing I tell <laughs> people, right? I'm pretty sure Charlie's a, a problem solver. Because <laughs> yeah, you're out in the middle of the ocean, right? You yes. You, it's up to you to fix it. And so with that, too, I'd like to go all that, all that to be said, I'd like to kind of start out, Charlie, with kind of pulling way back and do kind of some rudimentary approach. Help us understand when we see a refinery, it's this image we all know that pops into our head. But I think very rarely do we really appreciate not only what's happening, but why do we have these things? And so maybe help give us a little bit of a, of a baseline around what a refinery does. Refineries essentially take raw materials, and those can be simplistic, sand. It can be as complex as a complex chemical. And they put them together in different ways to come up with 
things that are building blocks for things we take for granted. For example, our primary here at Texmark product, DCPD, dicyclopentadiene, is mainly used in fiberglass products. Now you might think, well, what's fiberglass? Many components on RVs. With the COVID-19, the country has gone to local vacationing, so RV sales are through the roof, so DCPD sales are up. Anything to think about fiberglass. Think about the things on your house. Think about if you're fortunate enough to own a Corvette. Mm. And all these things have these basic fundamental building blocks in them, building materials. And it goes beyond DCPD, alcohols. Think about pick up a label, go into any supermarket, and you're going to see some percentage of alcohol on, on something. It's just it's a base substance. So, and, and we engage in that. We do adhesives. We do specialized products such that you go into any auto parts store, you can probably find 10 to 15 things that are related to what we do here at Textmark. So refineries just basically, they're a central part of our lives that take fundamental building blocks so that we can, we as human beings can have finished products in our homes, in our cars, and our daily activities every day. Well, and I think one of the big aspects of what you're saying is we, we tend to look at the companies, like they tend to look at you know, the refinery operators as the source of the, whether it's an emission issue or whatever that, whatever it represents, whatever negatives kind of come from that, we kind of tend to push on that. But we, I think sometimes we disconnect from the fact that that's happening because the market's driving it because we want, right? We want, we want to have these things. We want to have a fiberglass tub instead of a ceramic one. We want to have these things as consumers. And so it's, it's part of a collective cycle and that, that pushes the need for these refineries. And I also want to ask you a little bit about this particular refinery here in Texmark as well is is not a new one. And so can you give us a little bit of idea of the, of the history of this particular facility? The facility has components on it that date back to 1947 and when they were brand new. And the current family assumed control in the 70s, so for roughly 50 years, give or take. And most of our components are still functioning. So one of the biggest challenges for companies like Texmark today and refiners, similar refineries is, is safety. Not safety is paramount, not just for employees, but safety for the general public. These plants now exist in the middle of our communities. One of the oldest chemical companies in the city of Houston actually has a stamp on its building I visited recently saying 1836. And they're still using the building. So, I mean, and yet you've got literally 7.3 million people within a stone's throw of that facility. And the same is true here at Texmark. So safety, safety, safety. I, I can't drive it home enough. You'll hear terms today like mechanical integrity. You'll hear terms like process controls, automation. All those things are centered on the safety, safety of the public, and again, safety of the worker. Well, first, let me say, as a car enthusiast, one of the favorite things I learned yesterday is that there's 12 pounds <laughs> of DCPD in every Corvette. So if you're a Corvette owner out there, you love the guys at Texmark. <laughs> So let's follow up on that a little bit, Charlie. Let's talk about, you know, if we're going to build from scratch a refinery, I mean, bringing tech in and bringing a lot of the, you know, kind of some of this modern technology and everything, that's, that's really easy to do. But Texmark was faced with, we need to make some changes. We need to do some things for a whole host of reasons, but we basically have to retrofit a facility that's largely built from the 40s and the 70s and whatnot, a bunch of existing equipment. Are we worried about downtime? How do we do this? How do we implement this? Talk a little bit about that struggle and, and that journey of saying, okay, we're going to retrofit this place, make it the refinery of the future, but we're going to do it in an old facility and while we're running the thing. Well, like any any company with facilities like Texmark, 
brownfield is actually the best way to go in terms of rehabilitating what you already have. Because to simply knock it down and make it greenfield is so, so horribly expensive. And I've done both projects. I've cleared a field, took the plant out, built it brand new for a half a billion dollars, and also refurbished a plant like Texmark for roughly 40% of that cost. So, and, and made it as safe. Now, there's inherent challenges when we do that. If we're going to talk about worker safety, for example, the whole idea behind all these things we're going to talk about today from the CBT side and, and the consortium side, uh, the team members on the technology side, is to make the environment safer for the worker. In other words, pull the worker out of where the chemicals might be hazardous in the plant. And by removing the worker and placing them in a condition where they can still see what they would see if they were walking up to it and touch it, or actually see more. Because with instrumentation and automation and digital transformation today, we can look at more information faster, analyze it quicker, and increase the accuracy and precision. And by doing that, we increase the safety margin. So we pull the worker back and actually make the worker, enable the worker to be smarter, and not just be smarter, but to acquire more skills. And in the old days, let's say 10 years ago, you used to walk around with a clipboard, take readings. They would ask you what's happening. You have looked back over your 12-hour shift. And okay, you maybe spot a problem if you were lucky. More than likely, something was going to break and you're going to have to fix it. Today, with all the, you're going to hear about process analytics, cloud environment, and so forth, all these things coming to bear here at Texmark allow the employee to embrace new technology, embrace new things that they want to do. One of the coolest things around Texmark workers, from my perspective, and why I enjoy being here, having been here a little over a year, is their idea to want to do something new and make it work and actually not settle for status quo, but to actually get out there and say, I have an idea, Charlie. And if long as management's open to the, having an idea and pushing it and even maybe funding the idea, we get the benefit not just from four or five managers in the plant, but we get the benefit from 41 invested technologists who actually are striving to push the company forward. So, so just to talk a little about the kind of the older way of doing things, we, we tend to think about, I, I think about the example of Marie Curie and Madame Curie and how she, you know, in order to ing- integrate with that, with radiation and stuff like that, she got exposed. And so there was a physical risk and it actually, you know, cost her her life. And the, the kind of the ESG narrative in terms of a negative, especially around our industry, is kind of a lack of caring around safety. And there's there's decades of examples and stories you hear, and there's issues around that. And you were just alluding to the fact that the opportunity, well, it's a business opportunity, but there's this there's this need relative to the need, or the exposure rate of the of the liquids or the chemicals or whatever it happens to be. But it's, there's a conscious understanding that we need to make it safer. It's not just profit-driven, but there's a need to separate the human side. So looking back at the history of how this has matured as an industry, can you tell us a little bit about how, how the industry has addressed that issue and can you address this issue and even specifically why, you know, how this works in this example? I'm not going to deny that there's, it's not altruistic to want to be safe. That certainly it's there. But as you mentioned about financial impact, when you have to talk to corporate leaders, financial types, business people who actually fund these corporations, you have to present safety in such a way that there has to be a financial return on it. And in many ways, there are, because one of the things that OSHA, 
the Occupational Safety Board from the federal government, they kind of police safety in our industry, in all industries, but in this industry specifically. In so doing, they actually do take that business approach along with not just keeping people safe, but they'll say things like, they'll compile statistics like saying, did you know that the average workman's comp last year, whether you were talking about a broken finger or a severe injury, was a minimum of $250,000 to your bottom line, Mr. President or Mr. CEO. And you can, and they start to pick up, CFOs pick up and go, well, how do we avoid that? And it's amazing. You go into these programs on cost avoidance and you wind up with a safety, which is both altruistic, but strangely enough, has a great, great financial return if you get it under control. One of the things I would bring Rob in real quick is, is we talk about kind of this process and how it's evolved. And the case study was great. We heard all these amazing things from Peter and Kelly and talk about the things we, that they've done. But Rob, you guys are still here. We're still transforming. We're still kind of going through this evolution with Textmark embedded here with personnel on the ground to kind of facilitate that and really see, I mean, it's a home run already, but can we make it a grand slam kind of deal? Talk a little bit about y'all's process here and y'all's involvement here and how that's playing out. Yeah, I think that we've heard quite a bit about, you know, the people and it, it does start with the people and it starts with courage that, that Doug had to make the decision to go on the journey. But that's just the genesis Right. So once you start out on the project, you got to figure out there's 24 partners, you know, are, are all 24 in for the right reason? Or are we looking at a common goal? Do we really know what the experience and the outcome is going to look like? Well, in the beginning, the answer was no. Right. And there were quite a few partners that had vested interest and certainly wanted to be part of what we now know as refinery of the future for the obvious reasons. Right. There's a business benefit, there's a financial benefit, a marketing benefit. But for the partners that ultimately became part of the consortium and with the permission and the collaboration with Textmark, we were able to figure out, look, we've got to figure out a process on how we're going to do this, keep all of the partners in their swim lanes so that they're delivering their appropriate value to the global problem we're trying to solve. And then this journey had an unexpected timeline. So you needed to have patience, you needed to have conviction. And you wanted to work together as a single team to be able to create the outcome, which we have done. Here's the coolest thing. Now that we have got to the point where we're in production and we're working, we're now finding new ways to leverage the solutions and now looking at new challenges and across multiple industry verticals. So it's not just petrochemical and oil and gas refineries, but we're seeing that in health and life sciences, we're seeing in all of the utilities, the conversations have increased dramatically, the number of, as well as the quality of those conversations to make this industrial IoT thing that we call Refinery of the Future now scalable across multiple industries with similar benefits. But, and this is the really fun part, is the notion of the art of the possible. It's different for every person you talk to. And so now we're having these conversations about what if and they're saying, yeah, you know what, we could do that, leveraging the skills and the, the lessons that we learned with uh, Textmark and Refinery of the Future. So we expect that we will be here on campus and part of this family for, for really for an eternity. So Charlie, did that help us understand from the Textmark side, was that aspect of the, of the process hard to deal with? Or what did y'all do to integrate CBT into, because it's, it's an everyday thing now. I mean, they're here. So it's almost like as much as everybody's playing in the sandbox, or it's kind of like what's the old saying about 
guests, like you, after two weeks, like they're like fish, you, you kind of want your guests to go home. Where you work to have somebody else come in, even if it's beneficial for a short term, what was the long-term acceptance like? Unlike other companies that have come to Texmark and had very short stays, they've come in, had a mission, it was singular, it was supposed to help us out, maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but it was very singular and very unique to that company. CBT brings is this, you'll hear this word integration over and over and over again. Currently in Texas, there may be more, but as of last year, there were two schools that taught integration engineering and every one of their graduates were scarfed up before they graduated. So that gives you an idea that integration on a technology standpoint is important. And in CBT, it's one of their core strengths. And because it's a core strength, when you come in as an integrator, you really don't look at this piece, this piece, this piece, or this piece, but you look at the linkage between the pieces. And because of that linkage, because of that problem-solving ability comes from the ability to connect the dots, not from being a specialist on a dot, but the ability to connect the dots. Those are working solutions. And really, CBT is the first company I've dealt with that that's their bread and butter. And as evident, you've heard Kelly say this morning, and you'll hear more this afternoon, I'm sure, that that they're becoming known outside the chemical industry because of being problem solvers, because of being integrators, and really introducing industry to the fact that we need more than the dot. We need dot people. That's fine. But we also need people to take this dot over here and connect it to that dot over there. And because CBT does that, in a chemical company itself, in the plant, everybody wears multiple hats, especially here. And because you wear those multiple hats, you're an integrator. An operator is a mechanic, is an electrician, and likewise, an electronics technician is sometimes welder and sometimes operator. And that's that's how life has to be, and that's how we survive. So integration is part of our DNA. It was just when CBT brought that to the table, our guys just looked at it and go, boy, look at this. We don't have a consultant sitting in the back office wearing a shirt and a tie. They're rolling their sleeves up. I'm filling out badge requests to get in a plant. Our DCS operator, Mike Wang, who you met yesterday, he spends half of his time. I'm working on, where's Mike? Where's Mike? Oh, he's out in the plant. He puts on his FRCs, uh, fire retardant clothing, and he goes out there and he's looking at things, writing down, coming back, trying to figure out how can he make that world out there better for the people, for the operators in his office and his DCS. So, And, my, and Mike works for CBT. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Let's take a little bit deeper dive into the actual tech. And Charlie, I want to get your thoughts on, and we talked a little bit about this with Peter and with Kelly, and we talked about how it works, but would love to just get your thoughts, whether it's Connected Worker, whether it's the Real World Helmets. However, we can talk about Carlos some more. I'm happy to talk about Carlos <laughs> if, if we want to talk about Carlos, because he's a great guy. Well, we love not, for Carlos, yeah. We, yeah. we actually probably need to do an episode yeah. just with Carlos. <laughs> but talk a little bit about tangible real-world experience about how this tech is making life easier. It's making lives safer. It's actually translating to efficiency and effectiveness. And it's literally, it's better for your people and it's better for the financial statements. And talk a little bit about that. Even an example would be great. Well, for example, with Connected Worker. Without Connected Worker, you could be working on something and this is a very small plant, but it's a very tight plant. In other words, not a lot of space. And because we have a lot of piping and components crammed into a seven and a half acre parcel of land, things are going to go wrong, potentially, or have upsets. 
And when you have three people on shift in operations, they can't be everywhere at once. And the shift supervisor, many, many times, is using his two hands and being one of those sets of hands, which takes away from their ability to help out their coworkers, their coworker operators. So what Connected Worker allows you to do is allows the shift supervisor to actually see what his operator in the control room is doing and seeing. That's the other thing. When you look at, at a display in the control room, you, many, many times you're looking, you'll hear the operator say, it's not that way. And the guy in the field's going, oh, yes, it is. So Trust why, me, I'm looking at it. <laughs> why do we, <laughs> yes, why do we have this disparity? And many, many times the shift soup supervisor has the knowledge and background to, he goes, I've seen that before, I can help. And with Connected Worker, he now gets, is able to lend his expertise in two directions simultaneously Instead of being one of those firemen running to fight a fire in three different places and nobody supervising the hydrant or the truck or whatever. So, so that, that's one advantage. And another advantage is on the maintenance side, the operator will see something. And many, many times before connected worker, before the helmet, you couldn't, you got to do all these readings, right? So if you see a leak, if you see a spot on a pipe insulation, if you hear a pump running, you kind of make a mental note and say, I'm going to tell maintenance. Okay, well, shift change comes. You don't tell maintenance. They go home, something breaks. Well, now the attention to detail, they walk around. You see it if one of our millwrights is actually walking around or walking with my boss, Linda Salinas. If Linda has one great quality, she asks a lot of questions. So when she's overseeing, she's that set of eyes that doesn't know or accept a problem, if you will. Well, that way, so she's watching the connected worker, the operator walking around on rounds or the maintenance person fixing something. She gets to say, hey, what about this? What about this? You heard in the demonstration yesterday, look up, look down. Okay, those are things that we, if we're in the plant, we take for granted going, well, there may or may not be something up there, but we don't ask the question. So you get to participate. Management gets to actually be part of the process. And because if there's one thing workers really, really respect and expect, that is their leaders will be in the field or in some fashion expressing care and taking care to get involved in what they do, what's making their lives hard, what's making their lives easy. And certainly this technology with the realware, it just helps us just jump, a quantum leap jump ahead instead of just meandering along like we have. Yeah. So as we wrap up a bit, because this always goes too fast, but I wanted to ask, so Rob, what gets you excited about it? What's tomorrow look like for all this going on from a CBT standpoint? What, what gets you excited in the morning? What do you see as the, some kind of the next steps that are coming? Yeah, I think just that notion of what is tomorrow going to bring is the, the art of possible and how that has really matured to the art of what's probable. So now when you start to ideate, you heard uh, Peter and Kelly talk about this ideation session, and we always start that way with a conversation. And it's really to look at what is right and what's the next best for that particular customer that we're talking to. And all of those are lessons learned here at, at Texmark with Charlie and his team. And there really is a point in time now today where this industrial IoT Refinery of the future can extend into whatever you think is the art of the possible. We can ideate and get to that, and it's a crawl, walk, run scenario. 
So much different than IT where large budgets, large projects equal large dollars and large amounts of time. It's not that way with kind of the process that we've developed here. It's crawl, walk, run. So you find an idea, a notion, an idea that you think can really create something unique and different in terms of transformation. So we talk a lot about digital transformation and all that kind of stuff. This is actually happening. It's happening in production. It's happening real time. It's happening while the plant's in place. And that too can happen for what whomever we're talking to as our next potential customer. One of the coolest things in the CBT process that I think needs to be mentioned for the financial types, because you can design a project, you can cite a need, but at the end of the trail, there's a financial hurdle that's got to be crossed. The way CBT's process is, and properly structured and properly written in form of a business plan, there can be takeoffs at every single process stage to where you can demonstrate ROI. Mm -hmm. It's not just, well, I need $5 million and okay, a year later. Is it working? (laughs) And because those kind of things die on the vine today. But with CBT's slow, agile process, it's very, very tight, very well documented, very well thought out, and you can apply immediate dollars and cents to it before you even take a single step. I was going to ask Charlie if he had a message for the industry, but that sounded like you answered my question without knowing it. I think that was it. Yeah. And one of the things I just, I love that I just heard, we we talk about the art of the possible all the time. And then Rob made it art of the probable. But now what I've loved is that we've sat here for the last two days and it's the art of reality. And so it's amazing what's happened here at TakeSmart. And so thanks to both of y'all for spending some time with us. Congrats on the project and love what you're doing and keep it up. Thanks for the time. Thank Thank you guys. All right. On behalf of the Elevate podcast team, thank you so much for clicking play and bringing to life these amazing stories. We hope this elevated your perspective and serves you well as you navigate understanding ESG and the energy evolution. We are so grateful for your time and kindly ask that you rate and review the show on Apple iTunes, which is a great way to help us grow. The best way to support the work we are doing is to tell a friend about it, ask them to listen, and share with others what you've learned from listening to our guests. Lastly... We want to invite you to reach out to us for any comments, suggestions, or just to connect. You can do that through my email, sean.mccoy at oggn.com. I'd love to hear from you and what you think of our podcast. Be safe, and we look forward to bringing you another episode next week. Here's a demonstration of some mental stimulation. We a nation making change. Let me frame the illustration. It's time for us to elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. innovate. Elevate your mind to a higher place. OGG in the power here to innovate. Ha!